Hello, and welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. Thank you for uh, joining me as we go begin this study. I would like to take just a second though and uh, notice that I picked up a few uh, financial supporters. I want to take just a second or two or a minute or two and thank you guys for that. Uh, I do appreciate it. I want you to know it does help support some of the things that go into making these podcasts. Uh, it is truly welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, may God be with you. Subject of uh, this podcast is Are You Willing to Drink His Cup? Uh, we're going to be skipping around in Scripture tonight, so if you might want to get out your Bible, uh, we're going to be in the New Testament for sure. Uh, again, with a, uh, just a short word of prayer. This one's going to be a little bit longer uh, than the last few. Father, we thank you that we can share your word this way. I ask you, Father, for the filling of your Holy Spirit, that you would guide me in this teaching, that you would open the ears of those listening, that our hearts, minds, spirits, soul might be open and receptive to your word, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You know, I've been going to church for a lot of years. I've heard the baptism of the Holy Spirit preached, I think, you know, 50 different ways. But in all those years, I have never heard anyone preach or teach on the text where Jesus is speaking of himself in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. He says, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? You know, some people never get past gentle Jesus. That's the Jesus I call Sunday school Jesus. But Jesus is associated with fire. The next time he comes, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, he's coming with flaming angels, thousands of them. And here he is saying to the disciples, I am come to send fire on the earth. Have you ever been in a church during Lent, Easter season, when there's a big cross for Jesus and two for the thieves out on the lawn, either to the side or in front of the church? When you see those kind of things, you need to remember that the cross is not a symbol of Christianity. The symbol of Christianity is a tongue of fire that sat on the head of each of them on that first Pentecost Sunday. Now always remember, Jesus ain't on the cross anymore. A fire begins with a spark, gradually it blossoms to go out through the whole world. And usually with the expansion of, of a thing, uh, it gets weaker. But when the church truly expands, there, it strengthens it. And God never planned any failures for us or for his church. I want to bear this out from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said to her, what, what, what do you want? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, 
the one on the right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking for. She asked a big thing. In the other gospels, we're told that John and his brother asked. In Matthew, it says their mother asked. You know, maybe there was some collusion here between mom and, and, and sons, but they had agreed together. They believed that Jesus was going to have a kingdom. And they wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand when he came into his kingdom. But notice they came worshiping. But in their worship, there was begging. You see, it wasn't pure. They had an ulterior motive. They were trying to bargain with him. But Jesus answered and said, You don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now over in Luke chapter 12 verse 49, he said, I am come to send fire on the earth. Now what hindered him from giving them the fire at that moment? He was hindered by a baptism, a baptism of sorrow, a baptism of anguish, a baptism that we call Gethsemane. You see, there's not a place in the world where you can put the upper room on Pentecost before the cross. The cross comes before the upper room. But we in church, we, we try to turn that around. You know, very often we're asking people who never knelt at the cross, never came to the cross, to tarry in the upper room. They get a false experience and it evaporates. We tend to shun the cross. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, but I want you to receive a fire that will change that degraded will of yours. It will give you power. It will give you energy. It will give you life. He says, I want to do that, but I'm straightened. I wish it could be accomplished, but it cannot be done yet. You know, there are people, Christians, who think that God is only around to help us, or maybe I should say so-called Christians. They think we have a great utility God. You pray, he does this. You pray, he does that. You pray, you ask for it, and he sends you money. You pray, he gets you out of a jam. You know, he's not somebody you worship in speechless adoration. He becomes a utility, a utility God. And some on TV are exploiting that to the maximum. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 1. What will you? She said unto him, Grant that these two my sons may sit, the one on, on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And notice, they say unto him, we are able. He took them at the word. You know, I want my sons to enter your kingdom sitting on your right hand and on your left. See, she had no idea. The only way to enter the kingdom is through death. You know not what you ask. Are you able? Yeah, we can drink the cup. I wonder if she was still alive when her son was put to death. When James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword, that was done by Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, a man whose evil could be compared with Pharaoh, who liquidated all the Israeli babies in, in Egypt. Now, Jeremiah had more conflict than any other uh, Old Testament prophet. When he was raised up, he was immediately in conflict, and he was in, all the way to, through the time when he was dying. Did he have a secret for his power? You know, his secret is obvious because he tells us. 
thy fire burned within my heart. While I amused, the fire burned. Forty-one times Jeremiah mentions fire. They put him in a pit, but it didn't burn the fire out of him. And I challenge you to find a man that has made any history in God's kingdom who somewhere didn't have a second crisis after he was born again in the Spirit of God. One of the Quakers said he found something inside himself that wouldn't keep peace. He wanted to get rid of the thing and it was always troubling him. And William Booth said, I found that I ebbed and flowed until one day the Holy Ghost came in its fullness. Then he wrote a beautiful battle hymn that today's church doesn't know. The Salvation Army was a penniless organization. It went into 70 countries in 90 years. I didn't say 70 cities, I said 70 countries. People left their castles in England. Professors left their professions because they could see that fire as clearly, clearly as Israel could see that pillar of fire at night. The Holy Ghost was there. And old William had them going down, up and down the streets at night marching and singing, Thou Christ, the burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. That blood-bought gift today we claim, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Now, I'm not sure we want that. We need it. But see, the thing between where you are now and this baptism of fire is a cup. Jesus said to her, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan. He wasn't talking about that. The man who introduced him to the world said, I baptize you with water. Now that baptism was external. When he comes, he will do something internal. He'll baptize you. The literal Greek in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 says, with Holy Ghost fire. doesn't say with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You can't separate them. God is a consuming fire. He shall baptize you with Holy Ghost fire. That's what John the Baptist said. But there's something between here and there. You know, the church has never had more equipment than she has now. She's never had less power. Never less anointing. Never less of the, of the miraculous. Never less from the omnipotent God. When did you last tiptoe out of church Sunday morning breathless, awed by the awesomeness of God's majesty, God's glory, God's omnipotence? You don't know what you ask. I wonder how often God says that to us. You know, I don't want to get to the judgment seat with, you know, probably or maybe trillions of eyes looking on me, seeing me come up for trial, have God say to me, Son, I had many things to tell you, but you couldn't bear them. Let me ask you, when are we going to get serious about our God? Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What's the cup? Turn over to Matthew 26. Here's the baptism for you. He went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he comes to the disciples and finds them asleep and said unto Peter, Could you not keep watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. What was the cup? I'm going to tell you one ingredient that it had in it. It had betrayal in it. These 12 men, they sworn allegiance to him. They followed and walked with him for three years. When it came to a crisis, they all quit. Can he drink of the cup? What's in the cup? I believe in that cup there was internal suffering, mental suffering, spiritual suffering. Do you want to drink the cup? I am straightened, he says. I cannot do anything now. There's a baptism through which I have to go. The Holy Spirit cannot come down until I go up. And I can't go up until I've done the will of the Father. And then he goes through the agony of Gethsemane. He goes through the lonesomeness. He drank of that cup. Now I say it was internal because Isaiah 53.11 says he travailed. And isn't that internal? Deserted by others in the darkest hour, not only by, by, by men, but by God. Can you drink of that cup? Do you want to travail? You see, what people are looking for today is a painless Pentecost, and there's no such thing. What happened immediately after Pentecost? Read the book of Acts. They went to jail. It wasn't prosperity. It was prison, pain, privation, and persecution. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break through and steal. You know, there's a lot of wealthy Christians, Christians that are going to get to heaven bankrupt. And there are a lot of Christians who are almost bankrupt, living in poverty, who are going to be super millionaires when they get into eternity. Now we read elsewhere, if you're going to follow the Lord, if you're going to be a true Christian, it means division in the family. Your father and mother may hate you. Jesus came to the place in his earthly life where his brother said, he's insane. And people say, I want to be like Jesus. You know, I doubt it. You want to get kicked out of your family because you love God? Do you want to be so true to God that a Thomas comes and doubts you? A Judas sells you? Do you really want to be like Jesus? Well, if so, why don't you practice it? Why don't you spend 40 days and 40 nights of fasting? Forget all the paperwork. We make such rash vows when the temperature is running high in a meeting. I say the pain was internal. Isaiah 53.11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And I'm sure it was not only internal, it was also mental pain. I'm sure it was bodily pain. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters. You know, we don't do that. We fight back. We don't like somebody to carve us up, scorn us, ridicule us, humiliate us, represent, misrepresent us. Jesus got the whole, whole works. Yet he never even muttered once. It's when it came to the agony of the cross, it says that men shot out the lip, if God's your father, then let him deliver you. And I say again, 
the perennial challenge to a Christian is come down from the cross and save yourself. You made a decision in a meeting, I'm going to give more money to the church or missions and something came up, you backed off. I'm going to spend more time with God. You didn't do it. Before Elijah called down the fire, he rebuilt the old altar. See, we don't want to go back to old altars, to old vows, to old commitments. We always try to make new things. God knows they'll be brought down in a few weeks. Every Protestant church I've been in has a new program every year with its own new slogan. You ever think about that? Even a Catholic church. For the Catholic Church, 2023 is a year of grace. Next year it'll be something else. Preaching Christ and Him crucified isn't good enough. We think we can make it better. Christianity has not been weighed in the balances and found wanting. It's been tried, found difficult, and rejected. It's too tough. There's no part-time service. Jesus says, leave all and follow me. I was once with a pastor friend out walking. I was much younger then, in my early 30s. My, my friend was a pastor of the largest Baptist church in town. We passed by a house and a lady opened her door. Hey, you're the pastor at the church on the corner, aren't you? Some, I often go to your church. I sit on the back seat. I'm very poor. I can't give you anything in the offering. I want to do something for you. Would you come into my house and have a cup of coffee? So he said, yes. Well, we went in and man, did that house smell. I got in there, she had fingernails clogged up with dirt. Kitchen sink was filled with dirty dishes. There's a plate with some old bacon covered with mold. She reached into the kitchen sink to a stack of cups and picked one. The coffee had dried on the outside. It looked like it had about 100 bugs in the bottom of it. She said, now I'm going to get you your coffee. We said, all right, and she poured the coffee into the cup, black as a pair of shoes. You take cream? Oh, yeah, we take cream. Well, I don't have any. Would you like some sugar? Absolutely. Like my coffee a little sweet? Well, I don't have any sugar either. And with that dirty hand shaking, I saw the black stuff. It was supposed to be coffee. It's cold as ice. I... I hesitated, you know, I honestly felt like pouring it out. But I knew I was on trial. And she held those cups up to us and said, drink it. She handed me that dirt cup of dirty coffee. My mind went 2,000 miles away to a place called Gethsemane 2,000 years ago. The Father gave a cup of all the dregs of impurity and wickedness. He didn't give it to Gabriel. He didn't give it to Michael, the archangel. He gave it to his son. That's what he's come to do. He's come to consume iniquity. He's going to do it in a garden of Gethsemane by himself when everybody has betrayed him, when his nerves are shot and he can hear the enemy coming. He's thinking of all the years he's proven his power, shown that he was the son of God. He's walked on water. He's raised the dead. He's cleansed lepers. He's healed insane people. And they didn't believe on him. And what's the difference today? Do you believe on him? Remember, there wasn't one of the twelve disciples that had a Bible. Not even the Apostle Paul had one. If he had, it would have been only the Old Testament. 
because he wrote the New Testament, pretty much all of it. Don't boast too much about your Bible knowledge. It's going to face us at the judgment seat. You know, I have a much bigger Christ, Christian library at home on my computer than many public libraries have on their religious section shelves. You know, I wonder sometimes, are those books going to rise up in judgment against me? I say with all my heart, we're looking for a painless Pentecost. We want to invest a dime and get a million dollars back. Can you drink of a cup? Today, it's considered sadistic if you even say that people have to take up a cross. You know, we're told, don't tell young people about the cross. They're going to be discouraged. Are you suggesting that Jesus wasn't smart when he said, and I'm paraphrasing, if you're going to be my, my disciple, kiss the world goodbye. You see, when people are born again these days, they don't get separated from the world. Most likely, they're pastors of worldliest guy around. But if you're going to get what Jesus wants to give, if you're going to get the true baptism of the Spirit, you have to drink of that cup. And they said, we are able, and he said, you shall indeed drink of that cup and be baptized of the baptism that I am baptized with. But sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to give. Father's going to do that. Now verse 24 says that when the other ten disciples heard what was going on, they were moved with indignation against James and John. And now, he puts your noses in the dust. You're looking to sit on my right hand and my left in my kingdom? He could have said, are you prepared to go through hell to get there? You can't show me a revival in history that hasn't been born of travail, pain, loneliness, and dark, weary nights. In Scotland, nine miles out of Glasgow, there's a great big house, and it's a national memorial to David Livingstone. Livingston. In it, there's a model that shows the room where he died, where for years and years he prayed. It's made of bamboo and leaves woven in, and there he is kneeling over a bed, if you can call it that. It's two bamboo rods with some leaves on it and a candle is flickering. They say every night he would kneel at that bed and you would hear him crying with his hands raised, God, when will the wound of this world's sin be healed? He fought Portuguese slave traders. He did many, many marvelous things. Why did he do that? Because he had a Gethsemane of his own. His wife died and he buried her in the jungle. The baby she bore died. He buried the child at the side of his, of his mother. Another child died, and he buried that one. But the grief didn't change his zeal for God. It added fuel to the fire. The devil's trying to rob me. The devil's trying to hinder me, he said. And he worked with greater zeal. He prayed more than he had ever prayed. They say that night after night his voice would echo through the, through the forest or through the jungle. Oh God, when will the wound of this world's sin be healed? And all of our pastors, dear God, are concerned about is adding one or two more members, getting another bus to bring more people in. And I'm going to say this again. You can't have revival without travail. I want my son to sit on the right hand. Well, here's his answer. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called unto them and said, 
You know the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. It shall not be among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Now, that's just rich. They wanted to sit on his right hand, and he said, the way into my kingdom is like this. If you want to go up, you got to go down. If you exalt yourself, I'll abase you. If you are abased, I will exalt you. If you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. You know, it's reverse logic. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life. Not to give his theology, not to declare I have a mandate from the Father to instruct you. He gave them all he had. He gave them a Sermon on the Mount. He gave them evidence that he had dominion over sin, death, disease, and devils, and everything. And they were unbelieving. I'm straightened. I'm tied up. I can't do anything yet. That's what he said in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 59. I have no release. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Before that, John's words startled him when he said, when he comes, he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost fire. But he didn't do that. Not immediately. He said, I have to go through the Father's will. The Father's will is Gethsemane. The Father's will is a cross. The Father's will is I go down into the depths, lead captivity captive, and give gifts unto men. You know, there are two reasons we don't have revival. First one is we're content to live without it, and it's too costly. We don't want God to disrupt our status quo. The Christian life can only be lived one way, and that's God's way. And God's way is that I leave all and follow him. God's way is that when I think I'm going to have joy or something, suddenly that cup turns into a cup of bitterness. When I think I've arrived at something, the Lord shudders that. We think, if I had the privileges of Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, I'd be a real saint. Matthew 20, 27. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, give his life a ransom for many. I read a biography of Kate Booth once, the oldest daughter of the founder of Salvation Army. It was said even when she was 85 years of age, she could preach up a storm. One night, she said, I went to Brussels went to a large mansion loaded with antiques and costly things, a beautiful owned by a Christian. I noticed a girl there. About nine o'clock each morning, she would come out of her servant's quarters radiant. So I said to her one day, my dearie, I want to ask you a question. I've noticed the last few mornings while having my breakfast after coming out of your servant quarters, you're so radiant. And she replied, I begin at five o'clock, I begin at five o'clock in the morning. Five o'clock? To what time? Well, breakfast is usually at eight. Usually I have the last fire going by about half past seven. Well, how do you do it? Well, I just kneel in front of it. I sweep all the ashes on one side, put them in a bucket. I get some paper and some kindling wood. And let me tell you, getting cold to catch fire is a job if you've ever tried that. I go in that room and get that fire going. I go in the next, I go to the next, I go back and the first one's gone out, so I do it over again. Eventually, I get to breakfast a minute or two before eight, eight o'clock after I've lit my 12 fires. Well, don't you get impatient? Oh, no. You 
you say the fires go out. Yeah, they often go out. Do you get up early for devotions? No, not very early. Well, how do you maintain your spiritual life? Oh, she said, every time I light a fire, I say, Jesus, while I'm kindling this fire, kindle a fire in me. Now, here's this little girl talking to one of the most powerful Christian women in the world, a woman who at 21 years of age went to Paris and turned the city upside down preaching to prostitutes. The queen of the underworld was there. Men came from the Sorbonne, the greatest intellectuals with their long beards and their pipes, and they listened to her. And yet Kate Booth said that young lady taught me more than most sermons I've ever heard. She had to light the fire, get the bellows, blow the things up, and try to get them going. And she said at every, every fireplace, I never missed one morning saying, Lord, as I'm kindling this fire, kindle your fire in me. The fire of love for your will. The fire of love. The fire of joy. The fire of peace. The fire of compassion. You know, if that fire came back to the church, we'd turn America upside down six months. But ours is all theology. We get a starving man, we give him a cookbook. Does it help him? Oh, he looks in the cookbook and there's a dish with potatoes and beef and all kind of stuff. What do you do? You tantalize him. You say, I hope one day you can come to our place. We're going to have this, this potato, this beef, this turkey. And we're going to have more stuff. And the poor man is ravenously hungry. We give him a picture, but we don't give him the goods. You know, the average church on Sunday morning, they give you the menu, but they never give you the meat. They give an outline of theology. Oh, this is our precious doctrine. And most people are going to be reciting doctrine in hell. Now, as I've said before, if you say, where two or three are gathered in his name, you know, if the living Christ is in your meeting, hi, in God's name, can you have a dead service? It's totally impossible. Oh, we try to bail God out. Oh, the pastor's been to a seminary. Or, you know, sometimes I say a cemetery. Our pulpits are full of dead men preaching dead sermons to dead people. But there's going to come an awakening. You know, God Almighty doesn't care if he sends America into bankruptcy. He doesn't care if we have to stand in red lines. He doesn't care if our automobiles rust because we have no gas. But you see, it's so expensive. We have to do more than believe in the Lord. We have to believe on the Lord. We have to achieve, achieve more than, a, than have a blessing just because we feel better. We feel inflated or maybe we get a gift or something. I found that when somebody gets the gift of the Spirit, they're prouder after they get the gift than they were before. They're proud of the gift. Now the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, to me, is the most majestic side thing this side of eternity. The Holy Spirit produces holy people. Holy people live holy lives, producing holy fathers and holy mothers. So here's a question. You have to answer it for yourself. Do you want to drink the cup that he drank of? Because between here and there is a Gethsemane, a cross. And we're not going to gather people together and cause them to repent. Only God can do that. You know, go back to Joel in the Old Testament, chapter 2, and read it. Read it today. He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. But you got to wait a minute. The price is tremendous. 
lay all night between the altar and the doorpost. I'd love to see a couple dozen preachers who get together and lay between the altar and the doorpost two nights a week for the next three weeks with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Now, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues in the sense that so many people think, but speaking with a tongue we've never heard, speaking of travailing. You know, what's in Romans 8 verses 1 to 39? Is beyond language. It can't be uttered. It's God the Holy Ghost groaning through us. It groaned in Jesus so that he travailed. Are you going to suggest he didn't groan? Of course he groaned at Gethsemane. And I believe Jesus right now is groaning in heaven. If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, don't you think he groans over the church as it is right now? Or mis misbegotten thing that it is, powerless, lifeless, without authority. Most of our people can't keep victory over themselves, never mind cast out devils. We can't pull down strongholds. But I'm convinced it's going to come. There's going to be a great turnaround. But it's, I don't think it's going to be inside the denominations. Oh, it's nice to read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify now, sanctify means purify, edify, release, and transform. That he might do that, he suffered without the gate. But read the next verse, because it says, Let us go with him outside the camp. Let's be cut off from everything that is organized, man-made, and supervised. Now, you may be thinking I'm a radical. You shouldn't take any note of this, or especially of me. I have no covering. Well, I didn't know that. I've been going around without a covering. I didn't know it, but the Lord knew I had it, so he kept me. Who was John the Baptist covering? People knew when John the Baptist came. He didn't do any signs. He didn't do any wonders. He didn't work any miracles. But when he spoke, the words were like fire. They burned in the heart of the people. If a thing doesn't burn in me, why in God's name should it burn you? I wouldn't listen to a preacher who didn't kindle something in his heart. Because when John the Baptist spoke, the words were like fire. You see, I backed away from that rotten cup of coffee that, that woman had. And then forcibly she said, drink it. And at that moment, I remembered a man in a garden saying, Father, this is the most degrading thing in the history of the world. If it's possible, please. But the Lord let him do it. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now when it pleases the Lord to bruise you, what do you do? Do you ring for help? Do you phone for somebody? you call the church? Or do you get along with the one who, who alone is able to heal you? With him who alone is the balm of Gilead. You see, God isn't training Boy Scouts. He's training soldiers. He's training soldiers. No man that goes to war entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. That's 2 Timothy 2 verse 4. You know, the Marine Corps once had an advertisement. You see it on television and other places. We're looking for a few good men. You know, you can come and be one of the special men. That's exactly what God does. You know, I have chosen and ordained you. You don't need any other ordination. Out of the twelve, he chooses three. Peter, James, and John. 
Now, people say you shouldn't be selective. God is selective. He always was. He always will be. And out of those three, he chose one. God has a process of elimination. He doesn't ask you to drink a cup a week or a month after you're saved or born again. But you gradually move into that area where you realize that this is what he's after. He's after me going to the cross and not just to go to it, but to get on it. You may say, oh, I'm glad he died for me. But if he died for him, you know, seems like that's a fair exchange. He had all the glory of heaven. He didn't have anywhere to sleep at night. It would take eternity to unveil to us what it meant for Jesus to come and what he drank. He drank a cup of separation from his father, a cup of separation from glory and eternity, a cup of separation from worship because it says in, the, in Hebrew, in Hebrews that the angels are commissioned to worship him. Men didn't worship him. They spit on him. He laid it all aside joyfully. He took up a cross to be battered and bloodied. Now suppose God were as fickle in his attitude towards you. What would happen then? That little girl, servant girl said, I'm on my knees two and a half hours every morning. Every time I strike that match, I say, Lord, as I kindle this fire, kindle your fire in my heart, the fire of your spirit. Oh, God, I've been, I've been here for years. I must have lit hundreds and hundreds of fires. You know, she wasn't at the table serving meals with all the celebrities. She's up at the crack of dawn, carrying a heavy bucket of coal. She's cleaning up the dirt, doing a ritual most people wouldn't have. But she turned it into a sacrament. She turned the tables on the devil when he says, well, you could be praying. You could do more than that. She says, I would bear there some, some days. I would just worship. I would see the flames go up and think of the sacrifice that's been made. No, don't pity me. I've got a wonderful job. They pay me to help my devotions. They pay me to sustain my prayer life. I wish we had a lot more people like that. You know, you, you need to look out because he might come to you this week and ask you to drink at a cup. Can you share my baptism? My baptism is a baptism of sorrow, a baptism of desertion, a baptism of pain, a baptism of loneliness, a baptism of darkness. It's all combined. And so I ask you, can you drink it? Or will you try to make some excuses? Now all he's asking for is obedience. Obedience is the key to everything. And it's a serious business. Time is running out fast for all of us. You know, the greatest revival that ever swept America wasn't staged, wasn't advertised, wasn't financially backed, didn't have broken down film stars and ex-footballers. It was in the ordinary course of a meeting when Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Nothing was advertised, nothing projected, and he read it in a monotone voice. Jesus says, how can you see blessings of God when you see honor one of another? He resists the proud and saves such as are contrite of a broken spirit. And a lot of people are going to say, come down from the cross and save yourself. Now let me tell you this. If you see somebody else saving his neck and you follow him, you're going to lose your blessing, lose your reward, and lose your power. 
Nobody stood by Jesus. Maybe nobody's going to stand by you. It's a lonely life. It's a glorious life. But it's the one God's calling you to. So, did I actually drink that cup of coffee? Damn right I did. And right now, if your main concern is I just said the word damn in a Christian teaching, and please send me an email with your name, tell me about it, because I'm going to pray for you every day until you understand everything I've just said in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Father, I ask you to be with everyone that has listened, that you guide them and direct them in their Christian lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.